I don't know about your house, but last week uh, we celebrated Amazon Prime Day by buying ourselves a new vacuum. It was her idea. Uh, we bought ourselves a vacuum, and Brooke did an amazing thing where she was showing and telling me all the things that the vacuum can do when it arrived uh, the next day. Uh, and then she said, yeah, I, I know all this because I read the manual. And I was like, you read a manual for a vacuum? Who here reads a manual for anything? We all try it, and then when it breaks, it's like, oh, there were directions on that. We forgot about that. The, the book of 1 Timothy is often seen as a, as a manual for church governance or as a manual for how you and I are called to operate or to live or to minister through the local church. And what that often means is that people don't read 1 Timothy. They're like, nah, it's just like another manual that I have in my cabinet. I'm not going to read it. Maybe I'll look it up later if things get a little out of hand, or maybe we can argue from it at some other point, but let's just not talk about it. Let's just not get there. Uh, but in many ways, we see the beauty and the opportunity of a church uh, extending itself to a lost world when that church operates in a way of how God has designed you know, living godly towards one another, um, encouraging one another in the faith, respecting those who are older than you, but also bringing people up in brotherhood, those who are younger than you. Uh, last week, we talked about what it looks like to care for widows, even to the point of enlisting them to an elder list, even to the point of caring for them financially for the rest of their lives. And so we turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5 this week, where it talks about how the church, the membership of the church, is actually to relate to the elders. Very often we talk about how elders are to, and we should, how they're to relate to the church itself. But here in this text, it talks how the church itself is to relate towards those elders. You see this in three parts, really. Just scanning it, it talks, this passage talks about how the church ought to give money to the ministers that teach or how they're to properly accuse those elders when those elders are in error, how, how ministers should be disciplined there in the second part. Or in the third part of the passage, it talks about how to, or, how to ordain them or, or set them apart as those who would then operate as elders, uh, how men should be called in the ministry in the first place. Now, church government can seem uh, very exciting, believe me. I, I love it. I think about it. I want to talk about it. It really can lighten your life. Join me as we go through this. And I want us to consider what happens when these instructions are ignored. What happens when you don't give someone double honor to what God says you should do? What happens when you don't discipline elders correctly? What happens when you ordain improperly to the point of possibly the wrong men or in the wrong way? If they're falsely accused, their teaching will be dismissed. If they're not disciplined, then the whole church will fall into shame, especially those men who should never have been allowed to become pastors in the first place. So in short, if the gospel is to be announced to the ends of the earth, and it, and it doing so is the means by which people are saved, then the church must be very serious about who those announcers are and how to have a relationship with those announcers. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I love the behind-the-scenes story of how big-name college football coaches or college basketball coaches are selected. Like, there's so much going on behind the scenes. They don't just look around and go, oh, Nick Saban, we'll hire him, because he may not want to come. See, what, what did it take to attract them? Or you think of vice presidential candidates. The stories that come out after a candidate is selected, 
kind of the covert operation and, and wanting to talk to them, but also not wanting to show your cards or wanting to invite them into the campaign headquarters, but we don't want anyone to know about it, how all this is happening, I, I think it's, this passage is as exciting as those things. It's all fascinating, in part because it says something about the organization. So I hope you see in this passage how God directs our hearts as members of our church to think about our elders. Often we think aloud about how elders act towards us, but what about from the congregation to the elders? If you've got an outline provided for you on the bulletin, I've got this in three parts, and in many ways this is, this is in part what expositional preaching is, is allowing the shape and the structure and the tone of the text to actually dictate the, the on-ramp and the off-ramp of the sermon, but in many ways we, we come to this passage, and I know what many of you are thinking, oh, this guy's about to ask for a $500,000 salary, and it's like, hey, we, we go wherever the Lord's wherever the Lord's word leads us. And it doesn't say $500,000, but, you know, he will lead you as he does. (laughs) I want us to first think with these first two verses in 17 and 18, how the church is called to compensate or pay an elder. The apostle here introduces this important section of teaching by explaining what sheep owe their shepherds. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, it says, especially those who labor in the preaching and teaching. The elders here are the same group of elders that were talked about in chapter 3. They've been identified, they've been recognized, they've been called out, and here they're given instructions of of how they're to be dealt with. And what Paul says to Timothy is that he gives clues about what these men actually do. He says that they rule, or as one translation has it, they direct the affairs of the church. Elders are directed by Scripture to be spiritual leaders managing God's household. This means that they're to teach biblical doctrine. This means that they're to pray for the work of the gospel. This means that they're to carry out the vision for the church's future. But they also, warn in, uh, they also warn wayward sinners, and then they also welcome them back in repentance. But they're to rule, and they're to teach. To one degree or another, all elders are to do these things. But, but look at the text a little more precisely. There's a distinction being made between what looks like two kinds of elders— where they're all being designated as elders, but there, there may be some, or there is one here, that is set aside as one who labors in the regular preaching and teaching within the church. Some elders labor as preachers. In the contemporary church, this is usually done by full-time members of a church staff. Uh, since they do the bulk of the public teaching, they're identified as teaching elders who labor strenuously, which is a term for a lot of effort. Other elders are able to teach. They must be able to handle God's word, according to 1 Timothy 3, chapter 2. But it's not necessarily their vocation. Yet, an important part of their life is to rule or govern of spiritual matters in God's household. But the main point here is that what some of them deserve is what's called double honor. So those who are set aside as elders who teach primarily, vocationally even, Uh, the biblical word to honor them is often used by what we would use as a stipend or as an honorarium or as an allowance. Uh, We use it like honorarium today or a salary today. Now, before Paul tells Timothy to honor widows who are truly widows, what does that mean? It means pay them. Pay them to live as widows so that they may be freed up to serve the church and you might give them a stipend to, to do so, to provide their own household. But what about this phrase double honor. What's it mean to have double honor towards some of those in the office? Uh, The church ought to be faithful, is what this means, to pay them adequately. Double honor can be translated generous pay, like honorarium before. Now, the Bible doesn't specify how much 
Um, but whenever it does express it like this on how to interact towards a pastor when it comes to freeing him up from a vocation elsewhere so they can devote himself to teaching and prayer, it always talks about it with a sense of generosity. So it's God's plan that the needs of his servants are being met by their local church, and he'll bless the churches that are faithful to do so to his servants. Otherwise, the church would give a poor testimony. It says something about the, the church's witness if they don't take care of their widows and their elders and their deacons. It says something to others if what you're bringing to us is so honorable, but not honorable enough for you to be freed up to do this full time. Now, this doesn't mean that ministers go around expecting to be treated like kings. I shouldn't do that. Uh, rebuke me when I do. Because Paul's already warned them not to be greedy. That's one of the One of the qualifications of an elder is to not be greedy in chapter 3, verse 3. In fact, a man who loves money is unqualified to become a teaching elder at all, or an elder at all, much less a teaching elder. But when a church refuses to pay its pastor a decent wage, it, it comes into disobedience to the will of God. Look at verse 18. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And then it goes on to say, the labor deserves his wage. Now these are two examples from the scriptures, the first example is a direct quotation of Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. Now, I don't know that because I've memorized the book of Deuteronomy, but just so we're all on the same level here, you might have a Bible that has like a funny little letter to it or a small little number to it that, that brings you maybe down to the bottom of a page, and that's called a cross-reference where it takes you to another part of the Bible. Uh, Bible editors often do this to help us out, so if something sticks out, it's like, man, I feel like I've heard that before you see that it comes from Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 4. So Paul here, the apostle, in apostolic form, is quoting from the Old Testament, where he quotes uh, later on in a similar context in 1 Corinthians 9. But his example is that when an animal is helping with harvest, God's law entitles that animal to a share of the proceeds. You can think of an ox who's helping with what oxes do on a farm. They deserve to be fed too. Besides, he'll work longer and harder if he gets something to eat or something to drink. And the apostle says, that's what's fair for livestock is also fair for clergy. Now, the second quotation comes from Jesus himself. And this is where the Bible is very cool. In my opinion, the Bible often interacts with each other in these type of ways. So we shouldn't isolate you know, the words of Jesus from the words of Paul. We shouldn't say that they're better than the words of Paul, or I don't want to follow Paul because I just want to follow Jesus, or man, the Old Testament, that's for like people long ago, and it's bigger books, I don't care. What we see here is this, this is like an aside, um, what we see here is that the Bible interacts with each other. There's one truth going through all of it, so we should give our attention to all of it by its truth. But here, Paul is actually quoting from Jesus himself. When Jesus sent out his disciples two by two, he told them not to take any money with them, Instead, he told them to stay wherever people would give them help because, in Luke chapter 10, verse 7, the labor deserves his wage. Now, what's being taught, to take a step back in this point, what's being taught to these people who had received the letter of 1 Timothy and what's being taught to us is that sheep have always owed something to their shepherds. The Levites of the Old Testament were supported so they could devote themselves to God's word. King Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles commanded the people who lived in Jerusalem to give the portion due to the priests and the Levites, that they might give themselves to the law of God. It says there in the Old Testament, as soon as the command was spread abroad, the people of Israel gave in abundance the first fruits of grain, wine, oil, honey, and all of the produce of the fields. And they brought in abundantly 
the tithe of everything. The danger here is when a man is distracted by the ways of the world in order to provide for himself and his family, he's taking time away from attention from the Word, which is amazing to think about because one of the best things that I can do is spend a lot of my time during the week understanding, communicating well, and thinking through the Scripture so that I can bring it to you all in Mass. It's a great use of time when you think about it that way. Like the best way that we can be served from the Word is that one of us would stand here with confidence in the Word and say, this is the Word of the Lord. And we're all shaped by it, bit by bit, and molded by it, bit by bit. And you can see how, how this is a charge that's written to a church that's in trouble because they may, have been a taking, may, they may have been taking attention off the Word altogether. So Paul tells Timothy to tell them that a minister deserves his wagers. Now, a second thing that this text commands this church to do is to think about how to biblically discipline an elder. Biblically discipline an elder, there in verses 19 through 21. It says that the elders who deserve double honor are the ones who do their work well, which I think suggests that others are not doing so well. I think it's clear that reckless elders were a problem in Ephesus. It seems like reckless people were a problem in Ephesus. And church discipline usually goes to one of two extremes. We see this happening all the time. Church discipline usually goes from one or two extremes. Either there's no discipline at all, and the church languishes because of disobedience and sin, or the elders become some kind of evangelical policemen who hold kangaroo court and violate many of the Bible's spiritual principles, looking for people to beat. But the discipline of members is not what's being talked about here. This is what's talking about disciplining elders. Discipline of members actually occurs or is spoken about nine different times just in the New Testament. But here, Paul is referring to disciplining elders. When an elder fails and is being disciplined, we see here that the whole flock is impacted. Now, the purpose of discipline is restoration, not revenge, not hating people, but the point of it is, re- is restoration. Our purpose through discipline must be to save the offender, not drive him away. Our attitude must be one of love and tenderness. We see this in Galatians 6. In fact, the, the verb restore in Galatians 6 is often what it means to set properly a broken, broken bone so that it can grow back together and flourish once again. Think of the patience and tenderness involved of what discipline looks like. You, you parents do this all the time, right? You might want to lash out But you're like, no, no, over time, over time, we're correcting this little arrow as it flies through the air. Now, I think within this text, there are three cautions that Paul gives us. He he kind of puts up a banner of, this is how you discipline elders, but he gives a couple of cautions on how to do this, and it's instructive for us. Paul's first caution to Timothy was to be sure of his facts. Be sure of his facts. And the way to do that is to have witnesses. You see that in verse 19. Be careful to have witnesses whenever an elder is being... Uh, rebuked. The Bible is clear on this point, not just in this case, but you think back to Deuteronomy chapter 19, where this law was actually given to God's people. Anytime uh, that something happens, you need a witness to legitimize it. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. And Jesus did the very same thing when he gave out um, a pathway for church discipline of members. In Matthew chapter 18, he applied the same rule to everyone in the church, not just to elders. So when something happens, the first instruction is to go to that person. So I think there's a dual application 
of this principle within this text. The first, those who make any accusation against a pastor, an elder, must be able to support it with witnesses. Rumor and suspicion are not adequate for grounds of discipline. But secondly, when an accusation is made, witnesses ought to be present. Or in other words, the accused has the right to face his accuser in the presence of witnesses. Now, we we all feel this and know this. It's really sad when churches disobey the word and listen to rumors about anyone. Or when they deny the word and they listen to lies about anyone, any of you. I mean, who all has been lied about? That's a harsh thing, isn't it? Or when the church, members in the church, disobey the word by listening to gossip instead. And and many pastors have been beheaded in this process where, where people will stir up around them and then maybe they'll go to the pastor, but they've already got an army on their side. Many pastors have been defeated in life and in ministry in this way, and some have even resigned to the ministry altogether because we often think, well, where there's smoke, there's fire. And that might be the case for a volunteer fire department, but it doesn't apply to local churches. Where there's smoke, there's fire could actually mean from James chapter 3 that somebody's tongue is on fire from hell. Listen to James chapter 3, verse 6. It says, the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. So the first caution as we think about disciplining elders and what that looks like is that all the facts need to be right. The second caution is that Paul has a second caution here uh, for Timothy to do everything openly and above board. The -the under-the-counter politics have no place in a church. In secret have I said nothing, says Jesus. If an elder is guilty, if he has sinned and he is wrong, then he should be rebuked before all the other leaders, not just kind of passively dismissing him and, oh, we took his face off the website. Whatever happened to that guy? I wonder there. A church that I was a part of had a, had a hard time with, um, you know, over like a 20-year period, there were a couple of elders who resigned because of their own sin or sin in their family. And so it became, but all of this was dealt with, uh, I don't know what you say, like outside of meetings or no one was talked about or no one was told, oh, they just kind of disappeared. So that was a hard thing because sometimes when elders got tired or sometimes when they said, man, I, I don't think God has actually called me to be an elder, I, I need to resign from this everyone's going to think that I'm cheating on my wife. Or very often, what we need to do is obey the word of the Lord where it says you're to treat them without any partiality. You're to put them in front of the church as an example and say, this man has sinned, and he is not seeking forgiveness. He is not repenting of his sins. That's an instrument of teaching to the church altogether and to the world. So Paul's second caution here is to do everything openly and above board. Look at verse 20. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. Now, the rest here is the rest of the elders. They're to be warned not to sin. No doubt the rest of the church will take the hint as well, but literally they will stand in fear, fearing not only the consequences of the sin, but also that they would fear God himself, who one day will judge all sin and unrepentance. And it is he who is perfectly holy and has the right to be feared by every sinner. And he should be given the opportunity to repent. The elder should be given the opportunity to repent. And if he does so, he should be forgiven by the church. Now, there's a third caution here, all within the second part. Paul's third caution is in verse 21. Look at verse 21 of the text. It says, 
In the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing in partiality. There's a third caution here, that Timothy is to obey the word no matter what his personal feelings might be towards someone else. He should act without prejudice against or partiality for an accused elder. You know, if, he, if it's just his good friend, you don't know my good friend. He doesn't. You know, it'll be fine. He'll get better at it. The word of the Lord says, no, you're to treat him without any partiality. There is no seniority rights in the local church. <laughs> Each member has the same standing before God and his word. To show either prejudice or partiality is to make the situation even worse. You can imagine how this would show itself to the top of how some guys, if they're just kind of in the upper room of friendship, their sin is kind of swept under the rug, but then others, oh, if you do that, we will crush you forever. What does that say to the world about sin? What does that say to the world about forgiveness and restoration? Here Paul takes Timothy, though, to the throne of God. You think of the almost slow-moving anthem that is being announced in this one verse alone. He takes him to the throne where the Father and the Son judge the whole world according to the strictest standards of justice. With them are the angels of God who he chose to remain unfallen by his sovereign grace. And these divine messengers are mentioned as a reminder that one day there will be a judgment to end all judgments. Where Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, see the allusion here, then he will sit on his glorious throne forever. And the indication there is that he will judge evil and good. If God will render perfect justice at the end of history, the the lesson here is that we should aim to administer perfect justice on this side to be done in the present. Now, from an application standpoint, often scandals become he said, she said. Right? We see this all the time. And in many cases, it proves impossible to know the truth. Yet accusations generate constant gossip. The the same thing can happen in the church. A church member could stir up trouble by slandering one of the elders, either publicly or privately. Even even if the charge ultimately proves to be unfounded, that man's reputation is now shot. Rather than going to that person and actually having possibly a question or concern answered, they would go to other people and stir up and then bring not witnesses of what was wrong, but an army against the person altogether. One theologian observes adherence to this biblical principle, and he go to an elder with witnesses, adherence to this biblical principle would have silenced many malicious snitches and saved many pastors from unjust criticism and suffering. A reason to be especially cautious about attacks against the elders of a church is that Satan is out to destroy their ministry altogether. Hear this from John Calvin, where it says, none are more exposed to slanders and insults than godly teachers because it is indeed a trick of Satan to divide men from their ministers, slowly disliking their teaching. And in this way, not only is wrong done to innocent people whose reputation is undeservedly injured, but there the authority of God's holy teaching is is diminished. So whenever a judgment is called for, the church ought to give the judgment as God himself would give that judgment, without partiality, without favoritism, and with the hope of restoration. And this is how we ought to treat our elders in this way. One day, even the ministers who render judgment must appear before the the throne of Christ to account for all of their actions. And what the Bible teaches elsewhere is that actually the elders will be treated more harshly because of their teaching and because of their ruling within the church. And so we have to be careful with that. 
And we have to be prayerful with it all together. Now, a third move that Timothy does within the text, you can see kind of the logical flow here of, of how to look to a pastor who deserves double honor, how to look to a pastor when he is in sin. Thirdly, we kind of take a step back, and he tells us how to ordain those pastors who he was just talking about. Now, one verse sticks out here within this section, so I'm in verses 21 through 25, but one verse sticks out here in in, uh, verse 23. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. And you go, what are we talking about here? Is this all of a sudden going to be a lesson on alcohol? No. I think what's happening here, and I think what other people think are happening here, even though it's not entirely clear why Timothy's drinking habits are mentioned, I think what's happening is that he was in danger of becoming too severe or maybe too legalistic in his own pursuit of Christianity, where he would then begin depriving himself even of medical help in order to grow in purity. Like, I'm going to shed off just everything around me. And Paul is saying, hey, your digestion problems, which probably come from your church members, like, don't, don't ignore those, but actually help those. Yeah, you can laugh at that, but I'm not laughing. He might have become too legalistic in depriving himself where Timothy is, or Paul is telling Timothy, Timothy, take care of yourself as you're taking care of that church. More likely, pastoral ministry was giving him a bad case of indigestion, and he was to use the scripture on what it allows and doesn't allow for him to pursue the Lord as he pastors them. But here in this passage, I want you to see the emphasis here. It's not that I wanted to cover that, but that's not the emphasis of this text. What is more important is what it talks about when it refers to ordinations or the laying on of hands. Look at 22. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Now, in the New Testament, the laying on of hands, we see this typically referring to ordination or people being sent out. And it really is the the visual uh, instrument of people raising their hands and casting it. Now, through a little bit of history, I think that what that's talking about is that's actually them voting. So there's not some spiritual, mystical light force that if I come on you and pray for you, but then if I lay my hand on you, you're like, oh, the Spirit has risen within me. No, we we don't deal with that kind of power. That's the Lord's. But the raising on of hands or the laying on of hands is actually going, we affirm you. You know, you might send out a missionary, where it's talked about in the book of Acts, and they laid their hands on them saying, go and preach the gospel. Here in this passage, it says, don't be hasty, though, in laying on of hands. Don't be hasty in affirming those men into the office. Don't be hasty in counting them as your elders. In the New Testament, the laying on of hands is referring to this as ordination. It does this all over the pastoral epistles and even in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit committing these men to pastoral or evangelistic ministry through the laying on of hands of the church itself. Ordination is not something to be taken lightly. Ordination is someone being set apart to do a task. It's not to be taken lightly. If a church is not careful about who gets ordained, then it is liable to have a mess on its hands, which is exactly what Timothy had in Ephesus. And sadly, the church throughout all of history is well known for these same type of scandals, where people were just brought in too soon, or they weren't really evaluated. Or we like them as a buddy, so we put them in his office because they're good at it, but they weren't called. Anyone who has suffered through a disaster within the church of an ungodly person acting as an elder knows the wisdom of Paul's counsel to Timothy. One of the best ways to avoid church scandal is to be careful in whom the church ordains. Now, ordination to the office of elder is a solemn occasion, not only for the man who is ordained, 
but also for those who ordain him. Paul tells Timothy to keep himself pure, not to take part in the sins of others. Oftentimes we want to, uh, oftentimes we look down on ourselves or our church if we're not like rapid fire ordaining elders on an annual calendar. Like if a year happens where we don't ordain someone to an elder, oh, the the church isn't doing well. We have to have people. We have to have five people. We have to have 20 people if we want to be good. And what Paul says is don't be hasty in this. Be very careful. Ask questions. Seek to know who they are. It is is way worse in hiring the wrong person. You business people know that. It is way more costly to hiring the wrong person than to give it another month or give it another week or look at it a little bit more. And anyone who suffered through this in the church knows the disaster that it brings. Paul tells Timothy to keep himself pure, to not take part in the sins of others. What he's saying there is that if you ordain the wrong people and they sin, your name is attached to them. When people look at that man and see the sin that's present there, you've got to know they're going to look at you too. This may simply mean that he needs to be careful not to fall into scandalous sin himself. It also seems to suggest that Timothy bears spiritual responsibility for the men he ordains. And if his elders fall into scandalous sin, it will be a reflection of his own ministry. And he's implicated in their scandal. The best way for him to keep his hands clean, therefore, is to refuse to lay hands on men who are not qualified to become elders. One good reason to proceed with ordination with caution is that a person's suitability for ministry is not always immediately known. Now, this is obvious. Their immediate suitability for ministry is not always known. Look at verses 24 and 25. I'll read them out loud. The sins of some men are conspicuous, which is obvious, going before them in judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are uh, conspicuous or obvious, even those that are not cannot remain hidden. These verses describe four reasons or four kinds of people. Some people are such blatant sinners that they're ruled out altogether. They're spotted. They're known. Other sins are much less obvious, even in the church, where one typically finds the most sophisticated sinners of all. Some sins take a while to surface. But eventually, when the peace of the church is disturbed, or when there is trouble in a family, the sin comes to light. Such sins trail behind like a stain. And so the church should take its time to discern whether a man is really qualified to be an elder by looking at him and his life. And this principle can be applied positively as well as negatively. So also, good works are conspicuous or obvious as well. Some, sometimes, a lot of you are way more godly than we might even seem. It just, just takes a while to get to the top. True godliness shines like the sun. And there are some candidates who obviously belong in the ministry. They, they not only have strong gifts, but they also have a servant's heart. And not every good deed is equally obvious, of course, but according to the text, even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So good deeds might be, may be done in secret and are still unknown to God. We may be scanning the room constantly, looking for godly men to be recognized as elders, and, and it may take us a while to figure out that guy. You, know, you can imagine someone who's just quietly humble and loving his family and serving the Lord through his work. So Timothy should not rule out a man who may later develop into a good minister, but keeping the work in front of him. And this applies not just to ministers, of course, but to the quiet work of every humble Christian servant. I'd imagine some of you, if you've just been meeting with someone for years or weeks or months, and you just get together and you read the Bible, and you talk about it, you pray about it, the, the, the task is to keep going. They might have a bad week. They might be in a slump where they just don't know these things, but you, you keep pushing into them 
to where finally the Lord draws him to himself or where the, the lights come on about the beauty of the mystery of the gospel altogether. Now, in conclusion, I think this is a, there's an obvious practical question in this. This is talking about elders, right? So a lot of us might be saying, great, good, good for them, good for those people. But I think what this text often does is recognize that we are all called to be holy. We're all called to be righteous. You know, you look at the qualifications of an elder, and that really shouldn't be anything other than your own pursuit. You should be the husband of one wife. You should be teaching others the Bible. Not, not just all of you who are classroom teachers or preachers or whatever, but, but someone ought to be able to come to you and you ought to be able to say, this is the word of the Lord, because you love it so much and you digest it completely. You know, I'll, I'll never play professional soccer, but if I really love soccer, I'll learn about it and I'll want to talk about it with other people. No one reads ESPN.com in isolation, do they? No, it's a constant thing. Here's what happened in half the workday. Guys are texting each other about what they just saw on the internet, you know, this or that, politics or business or whatever. Why? Because they're feeding information to each other. That's what it means to teach the, the Lord, or teach the word of the Lord in our friendships with one another. There's qualifications of elders and deacons. That's for you and I. So an obvious follow-up question is, friend, what kind of person are you? This is talking about being set out. Could you be set out as a Christian? This is talking about being disciplined. Is there sin that you need to repent of? This is talking about giving people honor that they deserve. Would you be seen as worthy of honor and esteem and, and reverence of like, man, I, I want to I live like Bob. When I, when I grow up someday, I want to live like Bob. Look how holy and righteous he is. What will people find out about you in the days to come? Will your sins catch up to you? Or will your righteousness be exposed in the light? How will people discover that you are much godlier than uh, they ever expected? Now, some sinners will not be found out until the day of judgment, but they will be found out at the end. And in this case, some of these elders may not be found out in their time, but they will be found out at the end. So be sure of that. The, the message of the gospel that this church is trying to keep so pure, or what Paul is telling Timothy to help this church to keep so pure, the radiance of the gospel that God in Christ has come to forgive to redeem sinners, and he will come again to usher them fully into paradise or permanently in judgment. And so even hints like this about what you and I must be, it is because there is, a, there is an endpoint in view. There's an eschatological view in mind that what we do here today matters according to who we worship forever. In, in this life, some worthy Christian men and women seem completely overlooked, yet they have received the grace that is to be found only in Christ Jesus. And in the strength of that grace, they quietly perform the beautiful acts of self-sacrifice to one another. It's amazing how, how the New Testament talks about the church. It identifies it as a group of people who are living together and living life together. And it has two commandments. Worship the Lord and be good to one another. It seems like if you could kind of categorize things, one of the most repeated commands in the New Testament is don't be mean to each other. Why? Because we're really good at it, and it's really wrong. Another repeated phrase is, worship the Lord. Why? Because we fill up our lives with things that are not worthy of worship, but it's good for us to worship Him. One day, all these people's good works will be revealed to the praise of God's glory. Yet in the meantime, along with widows, younger and older men and women, how we treat one another in the house of God 
within all this are instructions for how we relate to God's gift of elders. The Bible always portrays elders as a gift to the church, and they're to live like it. The weight and the charge on this is to live like someone who's worthy to be followed. Anytime I do a wedding, uh, it's, it always gets to the part where you give the commands from Ephesians, and it talks about how the man is to lead his wife as Christ leads the church, and the wife is to submit to her husband as the church submits to Christ. And that ruffles a lot of people, but really, who's the weight on? Her submission or him being worthy of submission? You know, the weight, weight is on that man to lead in such a way that that woman looks at him and says, I love where you're going, and I want to follow you in that pursuit. The weight of here is on the elders to do well, to teach well, to love well, to, to seek out other elders to do well. Why? Because hopefully we're saying this is where we're going and the church will want to follow. And this in part shows the glory of Christ to the world, that in that God has revealed himself to his people by an announcement of the good news. And if the good news is worthy to be announced, then those men better be good at announcing that good news. Let's pray together.